Welcome to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University, exploring the relationship between education and justice and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Malekzadeh. Education is the key to unlock the American dream. So what will it take for all students to have equal access to its potential and equal power to shape our democracy? For 40 years, the Reverend Dr. Jeanette Wilson has been trying to answer that question. Since its inception, she has worked with the Rainbow Push Coalition to advocate for excellence in education for all students. In this episode, she will share stories from her struggle for racial and gender equity. This episode was recorded live as part of our Women's History Month series and was moderated by our guest host, trustee, and member of the Women's Leadership Council Advisory Board, Joyce Tucker. Joyce is the former Vice President of Global Diversity and Employee Rights for the Boeing Company. She is a nationally recognized expert with more than 30 years of experience in equal employment opportunity and affirmative action in both the public and private sectors. I hope you enjoy this important conversation. It's really a pleasure to be here. I firmly believe that sharing stories is a powerful learning experience. I know that we'll learn a great deal from Reverend Dr. Jeanette Wilson as she shares her struggle towards racial equity and gender equality. With that, I have the pleasure of introducing Reverend Wilson. Reverend Jeanette presently serves as senior advisor to Reverend Jesse Lewis Jackson, and she's the National Executive Director of Push for Excellence, which we call Push Excel. She has worked with Push as a volunteer or a staff member since she graduated from law school in 1980. Jeanette, I'm dating you. <laughs> she also serves as senior pastor of Maple Park United Methodist Church. She has a varied and very impressive career. She began her career as a chemist, transitioned to the legal profession, and finally to Christian ministry. She also co-founded Wilson Howard Attorneys at Law, and she was a former defense attorney. Dr. Wilson developed the first public school interfaith community partnership for the Chicago Public Schools in 1997 and later was employed as manager of climate for CPS. She spent most of her adult career as a civil rights advocate and she has an unquestionable commitment to youth. She spent her adult life hiring, mentoring, and establishing internship programs for youth. Reverend Wilson, 
We thank you for your dedication and commitment to racial and gender equity. And before we listen to your words, I like to say that when you're finished, I'll have a number of questions to ask you, and then we'll open it up to our audience. Reverend Wilson. Well, good morning, everyone. I am I am excited about being here today with you. This is a pay equity day for women all across America. And as I sit here, I have uh, many thoughts. First of all, I want to thank all of the uh, women that put this uh, program together. It, it is always good for us to remember where we started and compare it to where we are so that we can notice that we're making progress. It may not be where we want to be, but we, we, we have to see the steps uh, that move us forward as uh, on this journey called life. I want to thank President of Roosevelt University, who I think is perhaps the most open and kind and diverse thinking uh, man I've ever met. He has seemingly a commitment for diversity and inclusion like I've not witnessed uh, with other college presidents at his level with an institution uh, that I think was founded on principles of diversity and inclusion. I am a, an alumnus of Roosevelt University. I, I took biochemistry at Roosevelt University uh, many, 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 many years ago as uh, attorney Joyce Tucker has already dated me. I want to thank Pat Harris and uh, Joyce Tucker for recommending me with this opportunity to uh, share some information with the students and faculty and members of the Roosevelt administrative team on this historic occasion. Thank you for allowing me to share some reflections and some thoughts that hopefully will inspire the dialogue that uh, Joyce mentioned we're going to have. I think it's, it's significant that we are able to have this discussion in the midst of this pandemic, which really highlights the struggle that women face in a different way, in a more concentrated way. And so I just, I really want to say thank you. And as we uh, think about women, we are reminded of the struggles that uh, women have had to make across the years in this country. You know, it was, it was uh, a century before we had the right to vote, women, generally. And I think that as we look at this struggle for gender equity, we have to realize that the struggle is even greater for women of color because we have to make a decision every day whether we're fighting for racial equity or gender equity or both. And how, which one do you choose in the, in the workplace? Which one do you choose in the marketplace? How do you balance all of these uh, challenges? And I thought it would be interesting for women, for, we have to have some images and some models of struggle to look at, to, to want to encourage us, but also to help us understand how the struggle really was framed, how women were able to address the issues and not become hostile and not become angry, not become so frustrated that we just would throw up our hands and give up and, and, and have a sense of hopelessness. And so I thought that for the few minutes that I have before the questions, wanted to just kind of frame the struggle for, 
for women of color by looking at uh, two women that I think have uh, perhaps put the context of our struggle in some uh, concrete terms. One of them is a lady who spent much of her career in Chicago, so much so that they named a housing development after her, Ida B. Wells Barnett. And uh, she spent a great deal of time on two issues, women's suffrage and lynching. And as a journalist, she was able to highlight the atrocities of lynching that occurred mainly across the southern states, which we now know are the red states, which have become those states that have rejected everything that seems progressive. They, they uh, made sure that African Americans were not recognized as 100% human even after the Emancipation Proclamation. They were not allowed to understand their freedom for several months. For example, Texas didn't give African-Americans knowledge of emancipation until June, which is why we celebrate Juneteenth. In some states, they didn't know they were free until September of the same year. So even though the Emancipation Proclamation was issued in January, slaves were not notified because they didn't have Internet. They didn't have Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. They didn't have any of any of the kind of technology we have today. And certainly, slaveholders were not interested in sharing freedom with the people that were making sure that their products, at that time, cotton, tobacco, and other agricultural products would be productive. So, if Ida B. Wells, here's a, a woman who's a journalist at a time where it was even difficult for women to even be in that kind of a career. Women were at best housekeepers, and black women were restricted to very menial areas. We could cook, we could clean, and we could all certainly work on, on the farm. It was, not, it was unimaginable at one time for any woman to be able to teach public school or any school. And as, we, as, went, as they opened doors to some women, pe women of color were still isolated because of uh, the culture of this nation. But Ida B. Wells, having uh, been very close in terms of her father coming out of slavery, so she was a generation away from slavery. She reported on lynching and was able to include articles that were carried by the Chicago Defender along the uh, railroad using the Pullman Porters. She was able to talk about what these atrocities were doing to black families and to black people. And, but then I found out in reading about her how she moved from just looking at lynching to fight for women's suffrage because while white women were marching every day for the right to vote for the passage of the 19th Amendment, black women were not included in a visible way in the women's suffrage movement. Susan B. Anthony, who uh, many of us had great respect for because of her her moves and organizing for women's suffrage was not willing to include the presence of black women in the conventions that they had for fear that it would cause the idea of women's suffrage to be tabled because it would int introduce the issue of race. And without even passing judgment about why she made a certain decision, they had a convention here in Chicago. Black women could not speak at the women's suffrage movement event 
that we had to have churches host our events. And so Quinn Chapel in Chicago became a place where black women leaders who were fighting for suffrage and equality could speak and raise their voices and raise their concerns. And so that is why you see, if, you, if you're in Chicago, you must visit Quinn Chapel African Methodist Episcopal Church because it has the history of women's suffrage, but it also is one of the sites of the Underground Railroad. And so you have these parallel tracks of women's rights, women right to vote, women having the right to be treated as 100% of a person. At the same time, you have African-Americans fighting for equity and justice and equality. And so if I'm a woman, you hear Fannie Lou Hamer saying, ain't I a woman too? And at the same time, you, you hear women saying, but I, I, ha I should have the right to an education. I should have the right to, to equal pay for equal work. And so as I look at 2021, we're still fighting for that. It's, 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 it's a similar struggle. Have we made progress? Of course. My own personal story, I was born in segregation. I was born in the segregated South. And as a, you know, certainly as a child, I wasn't as clear as I am now because I was born on my aunt's farm in her house because my mother chose not to go to the hospital to deliver me because at that time, African-Americans were not allowed to be uh, treated as patients in the main hospital. They were treated in the basement of the hospital. So I was delivered by a doctor who came to my aunt's house and delivered me in my aunt's four-poster bed. I would go south. I didn't live in the south past the age of three, but I spent every summer down, as they say, down on the farm. So I, I learned what it meant in terms of public accommodation. Some of you have never been in a, in a space where African-Americans could not go in the movie theater and sit on the main floor. We were, at, we were relegated to part of the balcony, but we separated from white moviegoers by a black curtain. I'm a child. I could smell popcorn downstairs. And I would tell my cousins, I only went once because I couldn't understand why I had to go up in the balcony, why I couldn't get buttered popcorn. I could smell that butter. Show popcorn is the best popcorn in the world. So I'm sitting there saying, let me go downstairs and get some popcorn. I'll bring you some. They said, no, no, you cannot go downstairs. So they had this old man would come by with a cigar box to collect our money and bring us some candy. I didn't want any candy. I wanted that butter popcorn. So, of course, you know, they never took me to the show again because I acted. I was just so off. They, they said, that's okay. We won't take you ever again to the show. Could not go in the movie theaters. Could not ride on the front of the bus. My little hometown where my gra other grandmother lived, they bought a city bus. And so we were excited. She told me, I'm about seven or eight, we're going to ride the city bus. For the first time we get on the bus, the man calls her auntie, off the bus we go. So I, I've experienced what segregation really looks like. It, it's not something I read about. It's something I lived. When you take the train from Chicago to Tennessee, it's, it's the city of New Orleans. It goes from Chicago, Roosevelt Road, all the way down 
to Louisiana. Well, once you cross this imaginary Mason-Dixie line, you know, black people have to be moved from the dining car, the club car, to the colored car. And so, you know, as a child, my mother and father would assign us to some adult. Well, this one year, and I loved riding the train because I could eat in the dining car. So the preacher that they assigned us to, we were in the colored coach. And I said to my brother, don't worry, we're going to go to that dining car as soon as this train is rolling. And he said, no, I got some chicken. You have your, we had, you know, the shoebox. It was real pretty. Mother had fried chicken and we had the chocolate cake. I didn't want that. I said, no, sir, we're going to go to the dining car and we'll be right back because you had to respect your elders. Well, I had to get back before we got to Cairo because once we left Cairo, we crossed this imaginary line as a child. I didn't understand. Where is this Mason-Dixie line? I'm looking for a line <laughs> out the window. There's no line. But I had to move back into my car. And you could smell chicken from one end of that car to the next. We could not eat in the dining car. I tell you this story because having moved from that level of no access to public accommodation, denial of the ability to ride a bus without being disrespected and disregarded, to the time when you see Rosa Parks and Dr. King moving us towards public accommodations. When I think about Ida B. Wells and her struggle to expose the horrors of lynching, and at the same time, challenging women to include women of color in the march for voting rights. And even today, as we look at pay equity, you see the, the women that are the most marginalized are the women of color and the women who are making the, the smallest salaries, the women who clean hospital rooms and beds, who, who clean the floors and those who empty the garbage. It is women who work in these hotels that are not making $15 an hour. It's women that we see in these uh, big box stores that make less than $15 an hour. So when we talk about pay equity, many of us think about, well, you know, as a, um, as a woman, I should make the same as a man for equal pay. It's even worse when you're on the bottom rung of the pay scale. And, and so on this day, I, I'm, I'm thinking that there's been much progress. We now see women, very few, heading Fortune 500 companies. Yet, when you look at our margin of profit, this, this country, this world cannot survive without the purchasing power of women. When I look at the churches and how few women are pastors in many of these congregational settings, we still have very few women bishops in the AME church, the Episcopal church. They act like we're still talking about, oh, she's the first woman ever. And in the Baptist church, it's even worse. And yet we are the majority of the members. We're the minority. It's not the minority. And it's almost as though women have relegated, we've relegated ourselves to a second-class status where we don't even support each other. It is an amazing kind of uh, experience to be marginalized by the men, but to be disregarded by women. And so it's, it, we're, we're constantly juggling 
these uh, realities. What is the intersection between race and gender? Where do we really begin to value people? What Dr. King talked about, by the content of their character, not by the color of their skin, but not also not by the gender. But if I'm able to bring this added value, then I should be treated in, in a way that values my value, that understands my, my, what I bring to the table. And so I hope that out of this uh, initial conversation, out of this dialogue, we can begin to look at what do women have to do to change how we perceive ourselves? Not as less than, but equal, equal to. How do women, young women, begin to value themselves not based on, on build and based on these imaginary uh, images of what a woman looks like as somehow that, that is some measure of her intellectual ability, her physical capability, and her character. And we have these images in the media of what women, successful women should look like, all of these stereotypes of what pretty is and what pretty isn't. Even as we market uh, beauty products, for years, women were not even engaged in designing the products and, and, and marketing the products. We allowed men to tell us products that we got to use, we have to wear, they're gonna figure out. I had a man try to tell me about being a mother and I said, well, you know, I appreciate your, your conversation, but you can't tell me what to wear and how comfortable these clothes are as I'm getting bigger, if you've never had a baby. And the last time I checked, y'all haven't figured out how to do that. And so it is, uh, how do we as women really have some honest discussions about how do we make progress. It's not to denigrate men, but it is to help them understand our value. I, I like Mika saying, Ika on Morning Joe, know your value. How do I help young women know your value and at the same time recognize the challenges that you face as a woman? I was chairing a meeting at a Push some time ago, and I'm getting ready to close. And I'm literally talking with a room full of men, and I asked my secretary to bring coffee, my assistant. She brought the coffee and handed it to me. I am literally standing up, you know, making some, I'm just talking about what we're, our negotiations. And so rather than act inappropriately <laughs> at that moment, as, as hostile as I had become, as I'm watching her, walk towards me with this coffee and these cups, I had to then move into my mother mode and distribute, or my wife mode, however you want to do it, distribute the cups and pour this coffee. And I just couldn't understand how she could not recognize at that moment, she never would have done that with a man. But at that very moment, you can see, I'm not, I'm not even pulling rank. I am really busy. And I'm having, I'm talking. It would have been so easy for her to have done that. And so I think that as we uh, look at this moment, I, I, I really focus as uh, I think about the organizations that I have worked for. The most inspiring moment is for me to think about Push for Excellence, how it is I can bring value to women, young women, young girls, how I can help them see themselves 
with unlimited potential. Always tell them it does not appear what you shall become. And get them to start thinking beyond. I said, you got to think beyond your circumstance. Your mother may not be able to help you do anything. I, I am a godmother of a young lady who had been in DCFS custody for a number of years. And I took her on a college tour. And on the way back, she starts crying. I said, why are you crying? She said, because you don't know my story, which I didn't. I had met her at church. And uh, she told me how she had, she and her brother had eaten out of garbage cans. Her mother was on crack. Her father was on crack. And how they had been moved from one foster home and situation to the next. So I said, I'm going to be your godmother. I did not know what that meant when I said that because I just commit to stuff and then figure it out later. What I learned was I now have a teenager who has never had home life, never had genuine, unconditional love from anyone that's not paid to take care of her. And trying to raise a child at that age who has been inappropriately raised is very difficult. But as I learned from her, we learned from each other. And so I was just going to say that Push Excel brings that kind of value to young women and to young men. We try to help them see themselves not as they are, but as, as God would have them to be. And so that's why we have scholarships. We have other programs to add value to a valueless, oftentimes valueless uh, situation without making them feel unfortunate or inappropriate. And so I am really excited about these questions that I know my, my friend is going to throw at me. I'm just scared. Though. <laughs> well, you did answer one of the questions that I had, and that was what in your role as PUSH, as Executive National Director of PUSH Excel, what do you offer to the women? And I think you, you just covered that. The only thing I would add is I offer... The, the symbol of someone who didn't start with everything mm -hmm. and, and had to have a mentor, had to have exposure, had to have uh, someone to lift your sights beyond the moment and to, you know, really say, this can happen. You can do this. Right. Right. And that's what Push Excel is. It causes you to push for excellence without regard to how you started, what you're born with. It's all about where you're going. Right. And it provides assistance in terms of uh, scholarships, mentoring, and the oratorical program. So there's a lot of things that are going on at Push and Excel. The STEM programs. I do STEM programs. I have another question for you. Oh, I think you talked about the division with respect to certain types of women. But right now, we're seeing, I mean, it, it's continuing in the Black community and with people of color, but there's a focus now on the Asian American community. There have been increasing amounts of violence in that community. And a lot of that violence is against women who are the most vulnerable. How can the idea of a rainbow coalition and organizing help inform a response to what's going on there? Well, I think that the Rainbow Coalition, Reverend Jackson's theory is red, yellow, brown, black, and white, all are precious in God's sight. And we have to begin to see each other as valuable assets 
to society. Asian women have been portrayed in very negative images by the media, by the film industry in particular, as sex symbols, as sex toys, as less genuine than they are, and never spending time not learning these other cultural nuances, how we, how we relate to each other. What does confrontation look like with African-Americans versus Asian-Americans? If I don't look you in the eye as an African-American, you feel that I'm dishonest. Whereas as in an Asian environment, that's confrontational. The role that Asian women have historically played in their culture is, is very, it's not dominant as a, as a rule. And so their behavior will signal different things if you don't understand the culture. I think that the hate crimes that have been perpetrated on Asians today helps broaden the dialogue about hate crimes generally. We've, we, we experience hate crimes as African-Americans constantly. They don't consider it hate crimes, however. It's legally a hate crime, but we're not, it's like the George Floyd uh, situation. That was a hate crime in a real sense, but it wasn't viewed that way because they try to vilify the victim. And similarly with Asian American, when the guys, he's trying to make it seem like they did something that would cause this response. As more people of color are under attack, it binds us closer together. It forms a rainbow coalition to deal with being disrespected, disregarded, and treated unfairly and inequitably. It's more of us than there are of those who are creating these harms. So it sounds like you're suggesting that when you bring those people together around a common cause, collectively, will be able to form more powerful ways to address it yeah, because and, and we and will get more attention. More attention and we'll make more progress. You and I know that all of the civil rights gains we were made were not made by African-Americans operating in isolation. It was with progressive whites. It was with multicultural groups of religious leaders that joined with us. You cannot walk this walk alone. You're listening to And Justice For All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University. And speaking about not walking the walk alone, if you look at what was happening with the Black Lives Movement mm -hmm. and the protest, that seemed to be a real rainbow coalition. So how do you think that movement fits into history? Two-part question. And what do you think the lasting legacy of those summer protests will be? Well, I think the, the protests really parallel what happened in Tiananmen Square in China the protests that happened in South Africa, you remember the ANC, it was the youth, young people, who really feel they have less to lose, they have the energy, they don't have the homes, they don't have families to, to think about, they only pretty much have themselves, and you put more at risk when you're younger. And those demonstrations, when I saw those young people taken to the streets in a nonviolent way, saying, this is it. It's enough of this. Just can't keep, 
you know, they, they started calling every name of everyone who had been victimized by these negative acts by some, very few, but some police officers acting in a certain, with a certain kind of cultural ideology. When I saw the young people, I thought of the 60s mm-hmm. with our demonstration. You know, Joyce Tucker will act like I'm older. I'm not. I'm her younger friend. (laughs) Anyway, that aside, uh, you begin to see the similarities and you see the horrors of how people are being treated, not because they've done anything, but merely because of the color of their skin. And it makes you understand this struggle in a different kind of way. I think the difference is... Black Lives Matter was a movement that grew out of an issue. Mm -hmm. In the 60s, we were a movement that was connected to some structural organizations, whether it was SNCC, whether it was Operation Breadbasket, whether it was the NAACP. And therefore, there were some guidelines that pushed us towards public policy. It pushed us towards an end game beyond the visible street action. And that's the challenge that the Black Lives Matter movement has. It's similar to Occupy. You can raise the the issue and the visibility and get the concern. You have to have some end game. You got to know, what am I doing this for? Because you can only march so long. Until you tell, show people the goal line, there has to be a goal line. It can be a hundred yard goal line, but it has to be a goal line. When you run track, you got you to gotta see that flag at the end. Everything has to have a culmination. And I think that the spontaneity of the moment was great. And now we're at the point where people are wrestling with what do we really want? What, will, what kind of change can really be affected now. And so that's 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 where young people are, are looking. You see more of them running for office than ever before because they're beginning to see, I can make change if I'm there. I can't give it to those people who have been there for 30 and 40 years and done absolutely nothing. So I'm going to take their seats. You see the push for public policy changes, not just at the federal level, they realize mm-hmm. politics is local. So I think you're saying that it made history. Mm-hmm. The added thing that needs to be added to that is some type of structure and some type of goal line. So big question, how can they be helped to get there? Or how can we help? I think we there? have to uh, spend more time in conversation intergenerationally. Yes. Cannot have these old people talking about the young people and the young people talking about we too old. Well, I always tell young people, I'm a youth whisperer. Mm-hmm. Never been there, can't tell been there how to get there. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing new under the sun. So as we dialogue, you have new tools, new energy. We have we can tell you where some pitfalls are. We can tell you some experiences that you're going to face and you can and say we made a mistake here you might want to try looking at our mistake and making a different uh, decision i think that the the challenge that we have is a great opportunity 
to move uh, cohesively together as opposed to analyzing what we did and, and just looking at us as if we, we have no more value because we have aged out. Reverend Jackson and I, Congressman Davis, Congressman Rush marched on uh, a Good Friday some years ago, a couple years ago. And so, you know, they were in the front line. And, and so some of the young people ran up to us. Where were you last night? Because many of them had marched the night before. And they were arrested because they didn't think through mm-hmm. what happens when the police come. You're marching down North Michigan Avenue where money is. So I said, well, where were you 40 years ago? And he looked at me, what are you talking about? I said, you can't, you can't challenge them. They faced hostile police where they beat them. They didn't just take them to the station kindly. They were beaten on that Edmund Pettus Bridge. They were killed. And so it's not where were we last night. I said, we were calling lawyers to go down to the police station to get you out. How do you think you got out? It was not accidental. It was it was not only providential, it was because we understood what you were going through. But if we had had the conversation before, you can have a plan, but at least run it by some people who have done some plans. And you and I know you have to have a whole team to make this stuff work. We have to work with them and not leave young people out on an on a island by themselves and we just sit by as couch potatoes analyzing what they should do. And if I was that age, please. Well, we're going to get some good experience with working together because many state legislatures have proposed hundreds of bills that were cartel voting rights. What can we do to protect the right to vote for marginalized people? And it's going to have to be the old and the young. It is that rainbow coalition. And I think that we have the power with the technology and the tools that these young people have. We can lobby these legislators. We can shut down their phones. We can demonstrate and embarrass them. Because what happens is at the state level, most of these state legislatures are far away from the voters. They go like, if you live in Chicago, you're going to Springfield as a legislator. Well, nobody's driving to Springfield intentionally, but we can. And so we need to look at targeting those legislators in states like Georgia, Arizona, Florida, where you have a a number of students, you have a large number of, of young people, help them get the transportation they need to demonstrate, help them move the policies forward, to object to uh, the legislation that's not only going to impact people of color, it's going to impact young people. Because the goal is to suppress the opportunity to vote. Can't vote on weekends. Can't vote on Sunday. Can't use the uh, ballots. You know, you can't vote remotely, you know, using the absentee ballots. A lot of that legislation is to take us back to 1980s, when I went to Mississippi, you had to register in the, the city and the county. We had to fight against that. And we have to help them bring the U.S. Attorney for Civil Rights to those states to inspect the elections when they are occurring, making sure that we monitor every election. So together we can make a difference. And to, right. Together we can protect the vote. 
when you started off, you were talking about the history of Roosevelt University and how it was founded on the principles of equity and inclusion. So what role can educators play, especially here at Roosevelt, to support racial equity and help students succeed? Well, I think several things. Roosevelt University uh, was the place that really was known for educating labor leaders. And, and you and I know that this whole fight for minimum wage, it's a big deal. Roosevelt and its professors have the capacity to do research and to hold forums talking about the cost of inequity. How does that impact families, how it impacts children, but bigger than that, how it impacts cities. When you have people so marginalized, masses of them and in communities, you can do studies on the impact of the marginalization of nine communities in, in Chicago as an example, where you have the most violence, the most poverty, the most food deserts, the absence of any kind of sustainable income generating sources it's in nine communities. That's where most of your felons are returned to the city. So Roosevelt in its teaching can begin to look at this disparity, these disparities, and, and talk about forward thinking, planning ways out of this. What did other countries do? And I think the diversity of your faculty and student population, there, there's just so much that can be done. You have a rich, rich history in labor, and looking at the role, the new role of labor in the life of Americans, because you have had major corporations like the graham cracker people move to Salinas, Mexico, where cheap labor markets. What's the impact of that on, on our society? And how does that impact the immigrants that are coming from that southern border? I mean, so I think educational institutions like Roosevelt can take a leadership role in convening colloquiums and convening international experts to help us figure a way out of this mess that we've made in America. When we're working on all these issues, we get exhausted. And as you were talking about, we need not to be hostile in our exhaustion. So what kind of advice would you give Black women and other women who at the point of the pandemic and the other stressors that we have to deal with, who are feeling worn down or who are struggling right now, what kind of advice would you share? Because I know you have to share it with yourself. I do. So what would you tell us? Well, I think you have to have a belief system that allows you to understand there's somebody bigger than you and I. And there is, you know, some people believe in there's this bigger force, this uh, Zen force. You have to be able, I, I have the God factor. And I believe that all that is happening is really for our good. Every challenge that I've had has been an opportunity for me to grow and develop in a, in a way that I would not want to. And I guess if you think about this, we are just pieces of clay. And in the Bible, you see the potter molding this clay in Jeremiah. And they're molding the clay. And you spin it on a wheel, 
and and while you're spinning on this wheel called life, there's this water that's being pushed on the clay to help shape it. Once you shape the clay, you know to make it into a sustainable pot or substance, you got to put it in the fire. Well, who wants to go in the fire? Nobody. But in order to be resilient and to get that glow that you need, you're going to have to go on to some fire. You have been under fire in the different jobs you've had. Pat Harris has. We've all been under fire. And so we're better because of it. You got to, you have to go through to mm-hmm. get to. You mm-hmm. go through valley moments in life. There are some down periods for all of us. I can't tell people when you're going to get it and what it's going to look like. I can tell you, you can make it through, but you got to have a faith in somebody other than yourself because by yourself, you can sit there and talk to yourself and you might, you know, might need some help. And right. so you're going to need some spiritual help. You may need counseling if it gets, if you're getting really depressed. You may need to have, not talk to your girlfriends who are as crazy as you are. You don't talk to some, don't talk to people that say, yeah, I knew it was like that. I've No, don't talk to them okay. because they're going to take you further down. <laughs> you have to be right. uplifting. Right. And uh, hope, hope is something that I can hope beyond me because there's some finite things that I cannot do in and of myself. We have a question from the audience, and I think it's a very good question. And we've talked about women and the issues that women had and part of it was with women but how can male leaders be allies to women because as you said we can't do it alone so what role can male leaders play i think the male leaders have to see women as valuable assets not as products not as property and not as things that uh, you Discard. They have to see us beyond secretaries, and that's difficult. Mm-hmm. You walk into a meeting as a woman, and be eight men in the room, and you're the only woman. They will make sure you're the secretary if you let them. And so, getting them to understand my value is beyond taking minutes. My value is because I really am an engineer, and <laughs> I can tell you how to fix this. And it's not with. Uh, with hostility, but it is with firmness. And, you know, whether it's in law and science or even in the teaching profession, getting men to see you as with the potential to be them. When I was a chemist, I didn't start out as a chemist. They hired me as a technician. I had a man with less education, less qualifications, Try and tell me how to, I was a detergent chemist, wash clothes. And so they hired a, a man and they made him a project chemist. Same experience, same background. I had both fresh out of college. And when I raised it, I said, this is unfair. Tell me what's different about him and what he has that I don't have. And they couldn't. I said, then I can no longer be that. So at some time you have to fight, step up and say, look. I can do these things, but you got to be able to produce. I am ready for this. Don't wait for them to discover you. This is not an a archaeology project. You can't wait for them to come looking for you. How many archaeologists do you know? Very few. So therefore, you don't have to say, I'm discovered. Mm-hmm. I know how to do this. And as women, we have learned different things just 
based on how gender, just how we pass paper lets you know we know things. Men will pass it one by one to each individual. Women will count the people on the row and, and, and pass that stack of paper out. So it sounds like you're saying that we can learn from each other. Yeah. And men can be mentors as well as advocates. And but the women may have to seek them out. You have to, and you got to find a man that is not intimidated by women and one who is secure within himself that can see your value. And I learned that uh, when I was working as a chemist, the oldest man there, they thought he was hard-nosed, but I would sit with him every day, and he taught me what I needed to know. Because the rest of the people thought he was just old and cranky. I figured he'd been there longer than I had, and the rest of them, he helped me. He became my mentor. We have another question, and the question is, have you ever spoken at TUCC? Now, I don't know what TUCC is. Do you? The United Church of Christ. Okay. I think I've been on the program one time. Okay. So I guess they're trying to figure out, have they ever seen you before? And you're saying, maybe. I'd love to go. Tell them to to invite me. Tell Dr. Moss, I said, invite me. (laughs) Right. So what are you most proud of in your work? I, I think that I am, I have, uh, I have lasted through a lot of things. You know, you don't get, I think you get the honors when you get older, but mm-hmm. everything that I used to dream about doing, I pretty much have been able to do in some measure. And so I'm just proud that I could have impact on, on someone else's life that would encourage. Mm-hmm. What you know, we're we're wrestling, we're struggling, we've seen progress, we've seen things roll back, we're engaged in another fight for civil rights when we thought we had fought that fight already. Given all of that, what gives you hope as we look forward? Because God called me for this moment. <laughs> I promise you, I wake up every day knowing that my path is really shaped by God. I didn't pick any of this craziness that I'm engaged in. I, um, I just know that God places before you a path, and if you follow it, it's got ups and downs, it's valleys and mountains, but I just believe I'm called to do what I do. Otherwise, I couldn't do this. It's insane. It just doesn't make sense. you know. And that's what ministry and mission, you have to know your purpose in life. And it evolves over time, I think, and it's shaped by the circumstances that uh, you come with. I didn't know, you know, some people say, I always knew what I was going to be when I grew up. I didn't. I was going to be a doctor. And I, I didn't like hospitals or and I could be around sick people, but that was not my calling. My calling was an advocate. And I didn't know it initially even though I would take my drug-addicted friends to the hospital and advocate that they get a stomach's pump from taking Mm -hmm. pills and stuff. A lot of our leaders are becoming elder statesmen. And we've got to, and they've got to pass the baton on. How do you help develop those individuals that we need to have to be able to pass the baton to? But it had to be, you know, I'm a 
a runner. I used to run relays. To pass the baton, you got to be on my team. Mm -hmm. You have to be in the race with me. And you have to run faster than I'm running because you have to catch me and you have to know the handoff. And so we have to engage young people in the race and teach them the handoff. And then they have to run faster, harder, no excuses. You can't tell me you're too tired. You got to keep running till you catch and then pass me. And there's going to be another runner that you're going to hand off to. But oftentimes we don't, we don't have anybody in the race. We're running that race by ourselves. You can't run a relay by yourself. How do we get them in there? We have to invite them, recruit them. And everybody you recruit won't make the team. So you're going to have to over-recruit over because to be on the team takes discipline. It takes training. It takes ability. And it takes consistency. You know, a lot of people, I can't just do this. You know, I'm tired. Well, it doesn't matter about you being tired. you got to push past that. It hurts. You push past your pain. And what so, can Push Excel do? Well, I think that we have to spend more time really in this idea of recruiting leaders, having a special, um, I talked to somebody about that, inviting uh, young people to a leadership development institute because leaders are born in one sense, but they're trained. Reverend Jackson was trained by Dr. King. Mary McLeod Bethune had an impact on Dr. Height's life and career. And so there's always been a mentor in the backdrop of these other women. Dr. Height trained uh, Alexis, Dr. Alexis Herman. And, you know, Alexis Herman had mentored Mignon Moore and Donna Brazile and so many others just in that political space. So everybody needs a, needs a mentor. And with that, and I think that is a wonderful... And you've been my mentor. You're so much older than me. <laughs> now you're trying to add age on me. I'm not accepting it. But with that, we can close. And, and thank you for your encouraging words, because I think the passing the baton is something that's important. And I think it's something that a collaboration with Roosevelt, you know, what role can Roosevelt play? And they're doing a terrific job right now. And uh, these programs are speaking to the incredible job that Roosevelt is doing. I want to thank you on behalf of the Women's Leadership Council for sharing your remarks with us. And I'm sure that you have given us a lot of stuff to think about and certainly a lot of stuff to do. We thank you for your perseverance. Can I work with advocacy? We know how hard it is and glad that you have the encouragement that you need to push forward. We enjoyed celebrating you today and we look forward to you not passing that baton on just yet, but developing those that you will pass the baton on to. Can I work with the Women's Leadership Council? I think that's something that would be very, very helpful to us. You can give us a lot of training and a lot of support, 
that we need. And, and that's what we're looking for, because we are committed to racial equity and justice and women's equity and justice. So thank you very much for joining us as we celebrate Women's History Month. And I really enjoyed the conversation, and I'm sure our audience did too. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. This was a phenomenal opportunity. And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening.